in the idyllic garden created by God, a snake has entered into conversation with a woman. Interestingly, the serpent doesn't approach Adam. He tests Eve, who only heard about the fruit embargo second-hand from her husband. The serpent immediately sows doubt, asking if God seriously told them they couldn't eat from any of the trees in the garden. Eve is quick to set him straight. It's just the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that has been ring-fenced. Eat that and they die, she tells him. It's at this point that the serpent lets them into a little secret. They won't die if they eat the fruit. All that will happen is that they will attain the same godlike knowledge as God, so they'll be able to see good and evil just like him. It's really the world's first advertising sales pitch. Unsurprisingly, the concept of temptation and the image of Eve has been used for any number of advertising campaigns for chocolate, perfume, fashion and plenty more. With no reason to trust him other than that he sounds convincing, and possibly because she wants permission to eat fruit as delicious looking as that hanging from the forbidden tree, Eve reaches out her hand. My name is Chaz Bayfield and this is Holy Bible Episode 2, Naked and Ashamed. couple of points before we begin. I'm not a theologian, nor am I a priest. I'm an advertising creative director. But seeing as the Bible underpins three major world religions, this is a book that has a lot to sell. Secondly, the Bible I refer to is the new international version, UK edition. And lastly, this podcast will not tell you what to think. This is the Bible minus the religion. That might be confronting for some religious people, but my hope is that you listen with an open mind. The Bible isn't just your story, it's our story too. Now, despite any number of paintings and imagery suggesting otherwise, there is no mention anywhere in the Bible of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil being an apple. In the same way that the creature which swallows Jonah isn't a whale, nor is there an innkeeper in the biblical account of the nativity. Over the centuries, tradition has embellished the Bible as people have found it impossible not to freestyle around some of its best-known stories. Back in the garden, as the serpent looks on, Eve takes a bite of forbidden fruit, then offers some to Adam. The couple become immediately self-aware and realise to their horror that they are naked. Hastily, they sew some fig leaves together to cover themselves up. But when they hear God taking a stroll in the garden in the cool of the day, their first instinct is to hide. Hang on a minute. God taking a stroll in a garden? So, he is a man after all. It's not surprising that we've already hit another hurdle. How can the God who later appears to Moses as a pillar of fire and cloud be human enough to walk around in a garden? Creationists see this as a theophany, a phenomenon where God appears in human form. Most Christians see Jesus as God in the guise of a living, breathing man who exists solely in the pages of the New Testament. But some believe that Jesus shows up regularly in the Old Testament, here in the Garden of Eden, later leading the Israelites across the Red Sea, visiting Abraham's tent and walking around in the fiery furnace with Daniel's friends. 
As God strolls through the garden, he calls out to the two humans and Adam tells him that they're hiding because they aren't wearing clothes. Curious, God wants to know if Adam's newfound awareness of this might have something to do with some fruit which the two of them have just eaten. Adam then indirectly blames God for tempting him. It was the woman who he put in the garden with him who gave him the fruit. He fails to take any personal responsibility, just as he failed to alert his wife to the danger of eating some earlier. According to the account in Genesis, he's with her at the time and might easily have stepped in. God is livid. The reason he's created people is to please him, not rebel against him. The plan was for Adam to be his co-ruler, and he was meant to live forever. So God now has to dramatically rethink his plans for humanity. When he's told by the woman that the serpent tricked her, God curses it, telling it that from now on it will crawl on its belly and eat dust. Snakes and humans will be sworn enemies, he says. People will crush snakes underfoot while snakes will bite at their heels. Eve, who is referred to throughout as the woman, is punished too. Women will suffer terrible pain during childbirth and, having enjoyed a brief moment of equality, they will now desire their husbands who will rule over them. For listening to his wife rather than following God's instructions, Adam is told that the ground is now cursed. From now on, he will merely eke a living out of it with great exertion and thorns and thistles will make it hard to grow crops. God tells him that it will only be by the sweat of his brow that he will be able to produce food and that he will continue to do this until he returns to the earth as dust. It is at this point readers are told that Adam names his wife Eve and that she will become the mother of all the living. God makes clothes for the couple out of animal skins, suggesting that their crime has now led to the death of other living beings. If the idea was that everything in Eden should have lived forever, Adam and Eve appear to have blown everything for everyone. To be sure that they don't get up to any more mischief, such as eating from the tree of life, which would allow them to live forever, the two shamefaced gardeners are evicted from Eden. Forced to take regular jobs and raise a family in the real world, the first couple exits paradise. After the eviction, God places celestial security guards known as the cherubim at the gate of Eden. He arms them with flaming swords to prevent the pair from trying to get back in again. Eden is effectively closed to the public, and though its current whereabouts remain a matter of conjecture, according to local folklore, the remains of its manicured lawns and shady trees lie under the rubble of the Iraqi city of Basra. Adam and Eve's undignified exit from Eden is known in religious circles as the Fall of Man, or simply the Fall. Thanks to the Fall, many churches teach that all people are born sinful. This means that they are bad from day one, which to many seems unduly harsh. Original sin, as this concept is known, is not mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament, nor does Jesus speak about it in any of the accounts we have of his life and teachings. Its first outing is in a letter by the Apostle Paul to the Christians in Rome, and it's only picked up by the early church a few hundred years later. An important note, there are quite a few Christian beliefs that post-date the Bible, and I'll be pointing them out as and when we come across them. 
As for original sin, Paul's thinking is that sin entered the world with Adam and Eve's rebellion against God. He believes that all people are contaminated with it for all time, and they can only be rescued from it by the selfless love and kindness of God, a concept known as grace. But all that is for another podcast. As downfalls go, it's a big one. But the thinking is that God might equally have decided to cancel the human program for good. Instead, he allows life to continue, although in a somewhat more compromised fashion. Having been ejected from the Garden of Eden for trying to get moral independence from God, the first couple decides to start a family. Adam and Eve produce two sons, Cain and Abel. The boy's relationship is a troubled one. Both become farmers. Cain grows crops while Abel tends livestock. But when it's time to show God their love and respect, Abel trumps Cain by bringing a more special sacrifice to the table. He kills some of the first young animals born to his flocks and brings the choice fatty parts to God. Meanwhile, Cain simply hands over some of the many things he has grown. Cain is consumed with jealous rage at his brother's showier offering, and God warns him that in his current mood, it's very easy to give in to sin. This three-letter word plays an immense role in the Bible. Ever since Adam and Eve eat from the tree of knowledge, sin has been seen as a barrier between humans and God. It is the act that breaks the perfect connection between the creator and the people he has created. The accepted truth amongst those who believe in God is that he utterly detests sin. It's offensive to him as it demonstrates very clearly that his people have rebelled against him and are choosing to make up their own rules. In Cain's case, God is not wrong and the furious farmer lures his brother to a field where he kills him. When God asks where Abel is, Cain mumbles that he's not responsible for keeping track of his brother. His sulky retort, am I my brother's keeper, is one of the most famous lines from the Bible. Given that God is all-seeing and all-knowing, he understands exactly what has happened. Cain's sin is a terrible one. He has tricked an innocent man and then killed him. Naturally, God is furious and puts a curse on Cain. From now on, his land will fail to grow any crops and he will be forced to wander the earth with nowhere to call home. Cain whinges that people might kill him on his wanderings if God doesn't protect him, so God puts a mark on him. The mark of Cain, as it is known, lets everyone know that harming Adam and Eve's wayward son will result in all kinds of bad karma. Cain goes on to start a family and build a city while the future of humanity hangs in the balance. Unhappy with creation's two caretakers, God has barred them from paradise and thrown them out into the real world. Now their sons have had a fight, leaving one of them dead in a field and the other banished. It's an appalling start for the human project. Cain eventually washes up in a land called Nod. His bloodline continues for another three generations until Lamech is born. All readers are told about Lamech is that he has two sons. Jubal is known as the father of all who live in tents and raise livestock while Tubal is the first musician and the father of all those who play stringed instruments. But Lamech has a violent streak and kills a man for wounding him. With lawlessness the order of the day and his plans to populate the world with good people in tatters, 
God needs to start again. It's time for Adam and Eve to come out of retirement and try for another child. It's a success and Seth is born. In Hebrew, Seth means compensation. A lot rests on the boy's shoulders if he's to make up for his parents' tragic loss and make amends to God for humanity's complete failure to follow his instructions. Fortunately, Seth sticks to the programme and becomes the leader of God's faithful people. This appears to be a pre-Jewish group of pagans who take instructions from God rather than make it up themselves as they go along. Although he doesn't accomplish anything especially memorable in his lifetime, Seth is a direct ancestor of Enoch, who, readers are told, is taken alive into heaven. His line also includes the ark builder Noah and Abraham, a man chosen by God to populate the earth with his millions of descendants. Adam's third son may be robbed of column inches by his superstar brothers, but he still puts in a good innings and ends up with a legacy worth shouting about. Five generations on from the birth of Seth comes a character who seems more myth than man and whose adventures fill a number of books which are still in print. Enoch's moment in the sun is a short one, mainly because God cuts him off in his prime and whisks him away to heaven while he's still alive. This is a privilege in the Bible that only the prophet Elijah and Jesus go on to enjoy. Enoch is actually 365 years old at the time of his final curtain call, but this makes him a mere youth compared to his son Methuselah, who manages to attain the grand old age of 969. Despite his premature departure, Enoch's great legacy is his books. Though none of them make it into the Bible, they are included in the quote, not quite the Bible subset known as the Apocrypha. However, they tell of Enoch's adventures in heaven where he becomes chief of the angels and God's primary aid. As such, he's tasked with carrying out God's decrees like some kind of celestial vice president. No doubt the scholars who pulled the Bible together found it hard to separate the man from his legend and so wisely kept his adventures on their to-do list and marked them non-urgent. Methuselah is quite simply very old. He is born and lives and lives. Aside from Jesus, who according to the Bible lives forever, Methuselah is the longest living person in the book. Other than being ancient, little else is known of the man. He's the grandfather of Noah, and had he not finally expired a week before the flood, there's a good chance he might have been given a rocking chair on the ark. Still, 969 years isn't a bad age to reach, and extremely old things are regularly named after him, such as an almost 5,000-year-old bristlecone pine that is still growing in eastern California. Interestingly, the first mention of Methuselah being a name for a large bottle appears in André Simon's Dictionary of Wine in 1935. Quite why wine bottles were named after biblical ancients is a fact sadly lost in the mists of time. According to the book of Genesis, the Earth's population booms and the women are especially beautiful. A group of men known as the Sons of God seem quick to notice this and marry whoever they want. The thinking here is not that they marry in the formal sense. Ancient biblical marriage appears to be far more instant and carnal, and the men simply take any woman they want. Many heads have been knocked together trying to decipher who these people are. One suggestion is that fallen angels, sons of God, intermarry with humans, 
daughters of men. Other theories that the rebellious sons of Adam and Eve's third son, Seth, marry the daughters of Abel's murderer, Cain. Whoever they are, God appears to have lost patience with them. He announces that he can't keep fighting humans forever and puts a limit on their lifespan of 120 years. This may seem a long time to be alive, but compared to Methuselah's 969 years and Adam's 930, human life has been significantly curtailed. At this point, the book of Genesis describes a race of people whose stature is legendary. According to the book, the Nephilim share the earth with the rest of the human race during the time before Noah's flood, and it is they who are the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men. Opinions on these particular antediluvians differ, but they are described in Genesis as heroes of old and men of renown. This suggests that they either accomplish feats of great bravery or that at the very least they are respected and revered by their peers. There is no evidence that the Nephilim are giants, although size alone might easily impress people in more primitive times when physical dominance is more significant than it is today. These are dark days. The Bible is only a few pages old and readers are told that God's people have decided that doing their own thing is preferable to being obedient to their maker with disastrous consequences. According to the book, God sees the great wickedness of the human race and how the human heart seems hardwired to commit evil. He regrets creating humans and is recorded as being deeply troubled. In a fit of pique, the creator decides to reverse creation and to take things back to day one when the earth was still covered with water. The plan which God puts in place to reboot the project involves a natural disaster the scale of which has not been seen in modern times. Quite simply, he will flood the planet with water and whatever can't swim, float or fly will die. But it's not all bad news for humanity. There is one good man left who God wants to survive the apocalypse. You've been listening to Holy Bible, the podcast that takes you on a religion-free journey through the entire Bible. Adam and Eve have dropped the ball catastrophically, and none of their descendants, aside from Seth, has much of what the Bible sees as worth shouting about. With the planet's new custodians descending into the same moral abyss as their predecessors, humanity needs a new hope. It is then that clouds gather above a landlocked plain in Mesopotamia, where a man, seemingly inexplicably, begins to build a boat. His story is next. Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chaz Bayfield, for Sleeping Dog, with music by Michael Old, and additional production by Johnny Hawkins. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. Please send any comments or feedback to contact at holybible.com. <laughs>